Hey guys, welcome back to the Drunken Scholar Podcast. I'm your host, Devin Clays, and this is the Wars of the North series. And where we left off last time was the disaster that was the Grodno campaign for the coalition forces, right? The losses at Fraustadt and Grodno were immense. Then soon after, Charles had invaded Saxony and forced them out of the war, being able to dictate unconditional terms to Augustus the Strong as he is relieved of the Polish crown and decides to peace out of the war. And meanwhile, his Polish supporters in the Commonwealth do not recognize his abdication and are still fighting. Where we see ourselves out now is, you know, Sweden's been able to force out both Denmark and Saxony, and ideally the Commonwealth from the war. Although there are still these loyalist rebels still fighting, he's going to leave some men behind to support Władysław Leszczynski so Leszczynski can consolidate his power in the Commonwealth. Meanwhile, he's going to be preparing for this great Russian campaign to finally end the war. But there's a lot of moving pieces going on at this time. Because after this Grodno campaign, you could see Charles, he's... This is like the peak of the Swedes during this great Northern War, right? So far, the Swedes have won every single major engagement that matters. And at this point, Peter, he's trying to establish a peace with Sweden and is willing to give back all the occupied territory in exchange for Sweden giving up St. Petersburg to Russia. But Charles just completely rejects the offer out of hand, which in hindsight seems like a good idea. But at the time, from Charles's position, Sweden was being attacked by the coalition, and he's done nothing but win. So why should they give Russia anything? And also, what's to stop Russia from coming back with these hordes to take even more from Sweden, right? So he rejects this out of hand. And during this period of this, we'll call it this planning phase, right? There's a number of big things going on strategically, financially, and politically speaking here. Because during this pause, after Grodno, and, but before the Russian invasion, he makes a critical error here. And Charles decides that he's going to get more involved in these Commonwealth politics. He kind of oversteps Wadiswaf, Leschinsky, and decides to start handing out these Commonwealth titles and positions of his choosing instead of Wadiswaf's choosing. And this is going to piss off a lot of these other nobles and magnates, which were joining Leschinsky due to their own selfish reasons. But with Charles picking everything, this loses a lot of people's favor towards Leschinsky. And so therefore the loyalist faction during this civil war, they're starting to gain a little bit more ground here, um, politically speaking. Now, aside from this, 
You know, the war has been going on for almost eight years now and the financial problems are starting to stack up, right? What we see during this war is financially Sweden seems to be gripped by the same problems it's found through all of Charles's predecessors, right? That we've talked about during the series. Okay. Cause Sweden's fully mobilized and they can't afford this massive army for a long period of time. And when the war first broke out, Sweden had a little over a million silver dollars saved up in the treasury and the reserve war fund. But when Sweden commits to this complete mobilization, it costs the Swedish government six million in just the first year. And so quickly, Sweden's going back into debt, right? It's trying to raise taxes. It's trying to go out and secure loans from the English and the Dutch. But it seems like the risk is too great. There's no guarantee on the return on the investment. And so Sweden's having a hard time getting loans. And so what this causes is essentially Sweden's forced to go back to that almost like the war will pay for itself mentality, right? And these Swedish troops garrisoned, I don't want to say garrisoned, but camping out in the Commonwealth at this time and Charles's army, as well as other Swedish armies. These guys are under strict orders, you know, not to loot and burn the Polish or Commonwealth towns, you know, let like, as was the case during the deluge. But however, there's no food and there's no money coming in. So essentially what the Swedes decide to do here is just start extorting all the local population. All the local towns and villages pretty much have to pay up in both money and food. Right? And so this puts a lot of strain on this civilian population because just, you know, you, you imagine the Swedes are coming through to your village and they take half of your stuff. And then let's say, you know, you have a loyalist force or a Saxon force come by and they're, they also demand another half of your stuff quickly. The anger towards the Swedes starts to arise, right? And pro Swedish support slowly starts to erode away as people get increasingly pissed off about this whole thing. And then you know, to make matters worse, Charles's policy when dealing with the Commonwealth, when you're trying to extract this tribute uh, for the army, is that if these people don't pay up, we're just going to come through, kill every man, woman, and child, and burn down the whole village. So these peasants need to dig something up out of their hovels. And so once you have that kind of devastation people start getting really upset. But nevertheless, because of these financial problems and stuff like that, the Swedes are forced to be on the move, right? Th these guys can't stay in one place for too long. And during this time, the Russians also have their own stuff to deal with over here, right? Because after Grodno comes 1707, the Russians, they decide to just pull back the majority of their troops from the Commonwealth and stick to Russia. 
and try to prepare a more elastic defense. And, you know, one of the big things that happened in Russia due to this Grodno campaign that we talked about in the last episode is that essentially what happens is these Russian generals, these Russian commanders, right? Uh, as we said previously, a lot of these top tier Russian high command people, they're all like a lot of them are foreigners and Westerners taught on Western doctrine to help Peter's reforms and this and that. But what we see is that these, these Western commanders, they tend to argue with Peter, right? On this, this change of strategy, because these Western commanders, these guys are more in the camp of, you know, the war should be fought by defending key fortresses but by defending these fortresses, we can extend our zone of control and be able to plan accordingly. But the Russian viewpoint and arguing with these commanders is that these fortresses, once they get surrounded, could just be death traps and you could just lose scores of men due to these fortresses. And meanwhile, when the Swedes come through and they take these fortresses, the Swedes don't have the men to re-garrison them. Their, their army's not that big like the Russians are. So these guys are just bulldozing and blowing up all these fortresses, just leveling them. So that way, if they're ever pushed back, there's no fortress they have to retake. But, you know, so the Russians, they decide to fall back and for the most part, leave these loyalist troops in the Commonwealth to their own devices. And meanwhile, that same year, the Don Cossack leader, Bulavin, he decides to start a revolt. And this is going to really catch the eye of Charles here, because if these Don Cossacks are revolting, the Russians are going to have to divert troops to quell this rebellion. And so come March of 1708, Charles decides to march east, right? And the goal here is to take Smolensk first and then ride that road all the way to Moscow and get the Russians out of the war. And there's a few reasons why he decides to go this way. Okay, because for one, in the north, he has reinforcements coming, right? An additional 12,000 men with a baggage train of supplies supposed to come down to reinforce him. On top of this, you know, his army has been swelling. His troops are unbeaten, undefeated, more experienced. And, you know, Charles decides now is going to be the time because these Russians, they're pulling back their forces. If he's going to attack, it should be now. The critical error he decides when he decides to go east is that he doesn't wait for these supplies from the north. Right. He decides he needs to take the initiative now and not wait for the reinforcements and supplies. And so what happens is come July of that same year, 1708, the Russians and Sweden, Swedish forces meet up at a place called Holovchin. Right. This is in modern day Belarus. OK. And the Swedish, they've got about 12,000 men compared to the Russians, 30,000. So the Swedes here, Charles is outnumbered almost three to one. And then to make matters worse, these Russians, they're defending across a river 
on the high ground with a huge artillery advantage, as well as entrenchments for miles covering the crossing points from the, uh, across the river. But what Charles decides to do is, I mean, honestly astounding because here at Holovchin, what we see is like these Russian troops, although they're massive, you know, these entrenchments and stuff are spread out for so many miles. He waits until dark, you know, about like 1 a.m. or so. And he takes his troops and concentrates them all in the center. And what he proposes is that, you know, he's going to take the troops in this night attack and he's just going to cross his whole army across the river and charge up the hill into the trenches and destroy the Russians, which honestly sounds absolutely insane. But what happens here is that, you know, Charles is able to push up all of his artillery batteries, you know, about like 26, 27 guns. And, you know, at the same time, they start shelling these Russian trenches as Charles personally is the first man across the river to inspire the troops to charge, right? You know, something out of a movie. And, you know, he gets all the men and he orders them to just bayonet charge up the hills into the trenches. And with all this artillery fire shelling the Russian positions, they're not even able to form up to stop the Swedes from crossing the river. And once the Swedes get in hand-to-hand combat, I mean, we, we, we already talked about what happens when, when the Swedes get into hand-to-hand combat like that, okay? And the Russians, they immediately start taking mass casualties, and these guys start falling back. But the big thing here is that with this battle, you could almost mark it as like a turning point for the Russian army. Because although the Russians are getting slaughtered here, The Russians don't completely rout. These guys, they fall back and they rally. And this is going to be a big development for the Russians. However, for Charles at the time, he doesn't think anything of it. And, you know, he, he thinks the Russian troops are basically worthless. And so these guys, the Swedes, they end up going up there, charging them and pretty much slaughtering the Russian center, right? But the Russians are able to make an orderly retreat, right? Because by the time the morning comes around, the other two flanks of the Russian army are finally finding out what just happened. And so they order a complete retreat. They're going to fall back to Smolensk. But when they do, when they start falling back and ordering a general retreat, these Russians in total, they're going to lose about 2,000 men in this battle. And the Swedes are going to lose about 250. So, I mean, not huge losses, but the ratio is insane. Now, with this Russian retreat going on, only a fraction of their army was lost. So it's not like a crazy defeat. But these guys, when they fall back towards Smolensk, they burn and destroy everything around it. Okay, so at this point the Russians, they decide to start employing scorched earth tactics here. And so the whole area on the whole way to Smolensk and the road to Moscow is now burnt to a crisp. There's no, there's no food. 
and they even burn like whole villages down. So there's no shelter for the Swedes to sleep at. So now at this point, after Halovchin, the Swedes, or I should say Charles and his marshals, they have to come at this crossroads where they got to decide what they want to do here. Cause they could either, they could try to press North through all this scorched land right? Devoid of supplies and try to press for another battle and open up that road to Moscow. Or they could turn south to Ukraine to where the Cossacks were all revolting. Or they could go north, right? Up by Peskov or try to retake the occupied territories. Charles decides that the Smolensk road is a death trap. And up north, if they decide to go up north to the occupied territories and Peskov and all that, the issue with that is that all the towns and villages that the Swedes had already marched through, they've already extorted everyone living there. So there's not going to be a whole lot of ex supplies to take. So essentially what Charles decides to do is he wants to march down south into Ukraine, which is going to be one of the most fateful decisions of this man's life um, and the most costly to the war. And so what he does here is like he turns south, essentially hoping that these supplies from the north and all the reinforcements are going to come and meet him as he races down south to more fertile lands. But unfortunately, the supplies would never come. As in September of the same year, the Swedish forces would get attacked by Peter's army personally at the Battle of Lesnaya. And these Swedish troops, they're numbering about 12,000 here with 26 artillery pieces, whereas Peter's army comes down there with 26,000 men and 100 guns, right? So again, the Swedes are outnumbered more than 2 to 1, and then 4 to 1 if you count artillery. And then to make things worse for the Swedish army here is that, you know, these guys, they're guarding this massive baggage train, all the supplies meant to feed the larger army. And so what this causes is that this whole Swedish army is spread out. And then when the Russians start to close in these guys, the, the Swedes, they're not able to deploy the entire army for battle. Right. And they have to leave behind a quarter of their already smaller army back to defend the baggage train. Okay. And you know, to kind of get this geographical picture in your head, right? Uh, less Naya's like right next to this, this river, right? And the Swedish army has a river on three sides of it. Right. And to the north, they have this big forest and whatnot. And the goal is to basically get all of these, this whole supply train down south across this river and hopefully get it all across the bridge and make it to Charles's army, which is only a few days away, right? They're super close. However, you know, the, the Russians, they start attacking from the north. And meanwhile, Peter has like a small division of troops come from the south to burn the road down south to meet up with Charles. He burns the bridges. He burns the town of Propiosk, if I'm pronouncing that right. And 
Meanwhile, you know, the Swedes, they're, they're getting ready for battle and whatnot. And in the north, the Swedes have 900 men in this little forest clearing, but they're attacked by 7,000 Russians. But again, due to that Swedish discipline and just their, their shock tactics, they're able to charge the Russian lines and drive back all 7,000 Russians. And in the mean fire with all the, the musket volleys going off about another like 800 Swedish reinforcements pull up, right. To try to reinforce, uh, their own men. But due to the fighting, the reinforcements are confused as to which sides they're, they're supposed to be helping. And so they get fired upon and they fire off and now there's mass confusion. And so this Northern front, I guess of the Swedish army, they begin to start slowly falling back down south towards Lesnaya. Meanwhile, in the southern part of the battle, you know, the the bulk of the Russian forces are just trying to close in on the Swedish main battle line of 5,000. And, you know, against the odds, these 5,000 Swedish troops, they're able to launch like an aggressive thrust against the main Russian column, taking some of their artillery and almost causing a complete rout of the Russian army, despite the odds. However, the elite Russian guard infantry is able to prevent the disaster at the last moment, being able to hold the line and the Russians are able to rally their troops. Right. But even with this momentum, as the Swedish northern forces start to fall back, they link up with the southern troops, and slowly this Swedish army is pushed back further and further towards this river, right? And again, this river is on three sides. So can't picture these guys getting pushed back into like an L-shape river, right? And they're getting pushed to the corner of it. So things are starting to get really dangerous here and you know just as things you know couldn't get any worse right these russian cavalry reinforcements show up to the battle and they start trying to attack the swedish's right flank however the swedish uh reserve cavalry although much smaller these swedish shock tactics tend to be much more superior and they're able to just decimate the Russian cavalry pushing these guys back. But despite these little small wins here and there, just the sheer Russian numbers slowly start pushing these guys back closer and closer towards the river. And now the bridge with the supply train is starting to get exposed. And it's looking like the entire Swedish army is about to collapse and be slaughtered. However, 800 men from the baggage train decides to charge across the river and hit the Russians from the back, right? As they're, you know, forcing the Swedes to the river. And this surprise charge from the Swedes just completely switches everything around. And the Russians become stuck in a full retreat. And, you know, as, as the sides begin to slowly shift the battle lines the fighting starts to die down and the Russians decide to retreat back to the woods for the night. 
And it's looking like the battle's going to resume in the morning. But from the Swedish camp, this, the Swedes are thinking this is all like a ruse, right? Like the Russians are about to come over and attack the Swedes, you know, in a night raid or something like that. And so the Swedes, they decide to stay up and stay ready for battle. But the Russians never come. There's no night attack. And the Russians are just sound asleep. So after, you know, staying in this battle formation for a while, the Swedish commander, he's like, he he decides, you know, to just pack it up. No one's going to sleep and we're going to retreat to the south. And now with the lost men in the battle, the Swedes, they decide to just get rid of the artillery, right? It weighs too much and it's too slow and we got to get the hell out of here. So they destroy all their artillery and they continue the road south to try to link up with Charles. But now the Swedes run into the village of Propyoysk, right? Which I mentioned earlier, which had been burned down and the bridge to the, to link the roads down in the south was also burned. So now the Swedes, they're all paranoid at this point because they're like, yo, you know, these Russians, they could be anywhere. You know, they could attack us at any time. You know, why is all this burnt down? And so what the Swedes decide to do is essentially to get out of there with their lives. You know, the, the Swedish command, they decide that all the supplies that can't be carried with them in the the long walk all the way to Charles's army has to be burned or abandoned. The Swedish troops, you know, they're going to get rid of all these supplies. These guys say, Hey, you know, if we're going to overindulge, now's the time. So the Swedish army is sitting there getting all drunk and just all fat and happy. And a lot of these men, they get drunk and they wandered to the outskirts, you know, into the forests and are never heard from again. So whether these men just got drunk and lost from into the forest and, you know, you never hear from them or whether men just deserted the army, it's hard to say, really. But as a result of the disaster that would be Lesnaya, what we see here is that in total, the Swedes, they would lose about 3000 men and the Russians would lose upwards of 7000. Now based off of just the troop numbers, you know, you could say the Swedes got the upper hand, right? But strategically though, the impact would be catastrophic as basically all the supplies were lost. And now you have 9,000 men reaching Charles's army who is already low on supplies. And, you know, are struggling to feed the troops, but now you have an additional 9,000 men show up to join you with none of the supplies that were promised. However, hope wasn't all out for Charles at this point, right? He still had backup plans. And, you know, one of these backup plans is we mentioned earlier that, you know, the Don Cossacks were revolting in the East. Well, now he is able to convince the hetman of the Zaporizhian Cossack host to defect from Russia and join the Swedish army. And so this hetman of the Zaporizhian host, you know, he's promising tens of thousands of Cossacks 
to pull up and join Sweden in the fight against the Russians, you know, for Cossack autonomy and all this. So the Hetman, he shows up with a contingent of Cossacks, you know, a couple thousand men, but it's only a fraction of what was promised, but it's okay because he's got a fortress called Batarin to the south of Charles's current position. It's an old Cossack fortress, well stocked on supplies, ammunition, everything the Swedish army needs. And November of 1708, this is, this is going to be a big month for Charles, right? Because, you know, the Cossacks join him with the promise of more Cossacks. And Charles ideally is going to, on paper, be able to cause a massive Cossack uprising across the Ukraine and maybe try to get the Tartars or maybe even the Ottomans involved. Well, as the army begins marching south, to try to get to this fortress of Batarin, the Russians are able to beat the Swedish forces there. The Russian army is able to seize Batarin, take the supplies, sack it, and burn the whole fortress to the ground. And, you know, the Russians, they're not taking this whole Cossack defection thing nice at all. You know, and these guys, they continue on this destructive path, right? They go down even further south. They... They completely sack and destroy the Zaporizhian Sitch, which is basically like almost like a Cossack capital, if you could even call it that. It's like this place where the Zaporizhian host elects its uh, its leaders and whatnot. So the Russians destroy that, and the Russians stamp out any hopes of a massive Cossack rebellion, right? And so now those supplies and potential resources are lost as the Russians go back. They decide to sack and burn everything, continue the scorched earth strategy. So there's no resources there. But then, you know, as plan C, Charles also has supplies and reinforcements coming from the Commonwealth, right? An additional 10,000 men with a baggage train to, you know, is the last hope for these supplies to come in. However, Leschinsky's Polish Swedish army sending that way. These guys get ambushed and beaten by the loyalist forces in the battle of Konikopol. And this battle, aside from it being absolutely detrimental to Sweden or Sweden's supply problem, it is also twofold. Uh, importance because of that battle, Leschinsky is going to lose a lot of influence, and you know his his support has been going down. And now that Charles's army isn't around in the Commonwealth to prop him up, people are starting to have second thoughts about this Leschinsky guy being king. This is going to come into effect later down in this story, and then in total, now we're looking at. All the supplies from the north are burned and gone. All the supplies from the Ukrainian Cossacks are all burned and gone. The Cossack reinforcements are only a fraction of what was promised. Meanwhile, the the Polish reinforcements and supplies are beaten back and burned. And now at this point, you're, you're getting into this December time frame where that Russian winter is starting to set in, right? And... Unfortunately for Charles, this isn't going to be any normal shitty Russian winter. Okay, this is 
This is the coldest winter in the last 500 years. Okay. I, I cannot ex express like how devastating this winter must have been. This shit would have sucked. On Christmas Eve alone, Charles has 4,000 men freeze to death on just that one night. And so this Russian winter combined with the lack of food, ammunition, and gunpowder, you know, the, the Swedes are in a very, very desperate position. Then the last year, the fortunes of Charles's campaign have completely switched up. And you find a very desperate and starving Swedish army forced into a desperate place, right? These guys got to make a play to save the army, which cannot be replaced. And come early 1709, Les is going to try to send more supplies and reinforcements, but them two get beaten back, dashing Swedish hopes again. And so what Charles decides to do is he's going to go down south to this Russian fortress of Poltava in 1709. And what happens at Poltava is going to greatly affect the war and be known as one of the biggest disasters, if not the biggest disaster of the entire war. But I feel like that is going to be a topic for the next episode. Um, I appreciate you guys tuning in and uh, y'all take it easy.